Hello. Oh, there we are. Oh, technical difficulties are fun. Uh, but we're human. We're human. Uh, what a mic drop moment from Jesus. He just reads from the scroll of Isaiah, sits down, and he's like, here I am, the prophecy fulfilled. It's a beautiful moment and actually one of my favorite scriptures, a beautiful reminder of who our Jesus is. And uh, in this past season, we've been working our way through a series we've called Come Holy Spirit. We've been keying in on featured moments throughout the scripture that feature the third member of the Trinity known as Holy Spirit. And our prayer this entire time has been, come Holy Spirit. Now when I mention Holy Spirit, you likely belong to one of three groups. You might have one of three reactions. First, the first group, when you heard the mention of the Holy Spirit, you got very excited. Like very excited, like calm down excited. You're someone who longs for the gifts of the Spirit. You're enthusiastic, zealous even, for the goodness of God to disrupt our regularly scheduled activities. You're like, let's get weird. And let me affirm that these longings are good, maybe not the inclination towards all the weird. But this enthusiasm is a good thing, but we must let that enthusiasm and that zeal be shaped and honed by the biblical text. In our enthusiasm, we can't leave behind the wisdom and the guidance of the biblical narrative. And so as we've been doing, and as we will continue to do, we will anchor ourselves to the story of Scripture, investigating how we might harness our enthusiasm into biblical faithfulness. Then there is a second group, likely a much larger group, that heard Holy Spirit, and a sense of worry or fear may have crept in. Maybe you're more concerned than excited. Maybe you grew up in a tradition or a community that taught the power of the Holy Spirit as something we no longer have access to. You knew the stories of incredible happenings, but that's for them, not for us. And your concern is rooted in an unfamiliarity. Or maybe you're like me that grew up in an environment in which the Spirit was justification for everything manipulative, everything weird, everything excessive. An environment characterized by chaos and noise where God is talked about more like a genie or a magician. He shows up to perform his tricks for us. And your concern isn't that you're unfamiliar. Your concern is that you are too familiar with all the ways in which this subject can go wrong. I find myself in this group, a kid who grew up in a chaotic and prosperity gospel-laden community. I remember being a teenager, walking into an environment with 300 other teenagers praying in tongues and going like, no. Like, I know how weird this can get. But over the last few years, that aversion has turned into longing. 
We could spend all of our time worrying about the dangers and what could go wrong, or we could look at the life of Jesus and see that he embodied love, peace, joy, hope, and a life empowered by the Spirit. I think whatever anxiety I carried has been replaced with a deep longing to make my life a living laboratory. An experiment in what it means to love God, walk in the power of the Spirit, and to do the Jesus stuff. Which leads me to the final group, the curious. You have no particularly strong convictions or emotions related to the subject. You're just here because you're curious about the Jesus guy, and we seemed safe enough. So you're like, why not? And I think that's a pretty good place to be. At the place of curiosity. So I wonder if we all could take a cue from that third group. In whatever group you find yourself in, maybe we could just simply embrace a posture of humble curiosity. Lord, where might you be leading us as we follow your spirit? So with that, I think... Luke's biography of Jesus gives us a reliable pattern for us to begin investigating our curiosity. So if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. For on, on the agenda today is exploring the power of the Spirit in Jesus' ministry, considering how he invites us into a holy collaboration with the Spirit of God for the sake of the world. A holy collaboration with the Spirit of God for the sake of the world. Now Luke is the third of the synoptic gospels, which just means he follows the same general timeline as Matthew and Mark, whereas John's gospel does his own thing. Like John is way off on a different direction. It's beautiful, but totally different direction. And in each of the synoptic gospels, as they tell the story of Jesus, they each have their own flair. And with Luke in particular, he puts an emphasis on Jesus' interactions with the impoverished, with the disabled, and with women, elevating the status of those marginalized in the story. But Luke also has a particular interest in the spirit, which is evident just by the number of times he mentions the spirit. Now, Matthew speaks of the Spirit approximately 10 times, pretty fair amount. Uh, Mark only mentions the Spirit five times. He clearly wasn't a charismatic. Luke mentions the Spirit 17 plus times, 17 plus mentions of Holy Spirit. As Luke tells the story of Jesus, it's almost as if he steers the narrative in such a way that it's like the Spirit is this unseen energy moving the story forward, shaping history towards the Trinity's end. Luke doesn't invent this idea, though. He picks up on a theme that's present throughout the library of Scripture. For the Spirit is introduced to us on page 1, verse 1, as Ruach, a divine energy. In Genesis 1, the Spirit is the creative force shaping reality. In Genesis 2, 7, the Spirit is the breath of life animating humans. 
I appreciate Gordon Fee's definition of the person of the Spirit as God's empowering presence. For throughout the Hebrew story, we see God's empowering presence endowing certain individuals with divine energy for specific tasks. Endowing certain individuals with divine energy for specific tasks. First, there was Bezalel, an artist endowed by God with skill and knowledge for the sake of creating beautiful things for God's tabernacle. Then there are the 70 elders of Numbers 11, imparted with a portion of God's spirit in order that God's people might be led well. Then there's Saul and David, both empowered as the king of Israel to speak on behalf of God and to lead with courage. They are God's anointed, bridging the gap between heaven and earth. And then there are the prophets, a select group of Hebrew poets and authors who are enabled to see history from God's point of view and to confront the evils committed in their day. The prophets observed that while the Spirit of God made an incredibly good world, as testified to in Genesis 1, humanity has given in to evil, unleashing chaos through our injustice and disordered desires. But the prophets also imagine a day in which the Ruach, the Spirit of God, will come again to recreate. Like in Genesis 1, the Spirit will once again hover over the chaos and bring about order, but this time the human heart will be the chaotic space where the Spirit's work is done. The Spirit of God started creation by reorganizing the raw materials of planet Earth, and the Spirit of God will start the new creation by reorganizing the raw materials of our human heart. And so the prophets imagine the Spirit empowering the people of God to truly love God and to love one another. And there's this pivotal passage in Isaiah 61 where the prophet Isaiah tells of a suffering servant, a Messiah, the one who will be the initiator of this new creation. Isaiah writes this, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those who mourn. That should sound vaguely familiar. More than any other biblical author, Luke is desperate to communicate the energizing and empowering presence of the Spirit on the people of God. And he starts by outlining the presence of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. So he begins with little baby Jesus. And we learn some of this in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, but in Luke's, Luke 1 and 2, Luke includes seven of his 17 references to the Spirit. 
Luke is emphatic that when the faithful come near to Jesus, even as an infant, they are drawn into the power of the Spirit. And then Jesus is baptized in chapter 3 of Luke. We touched on this, Jesus' baptism in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 3, Jesus joins his cousin John, who is leading a small renewal movement on the banks of the Jordan River. As Jesus joins this movement, and as he was baptized, the heavens are opened, and the Spirit descends upon him, and the words are spoken over him. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then we get to chapter 4, where Luke writes, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit in the power of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit in the power of the Spirit. Well, for good measure, let's throw in baptized by the Spirit. Baptized, full, led, empowered. Different verbs with different senses, but my overall impression is that they are describing the same reality from a different perspective. Whatever verb is used, all are indicating an interaction between the immaterial spirit of God and an embodied human. Baptized in the spirit, filled with the spirit, led by the spirit, empowered by the spirit. All four phrases operating metaphorically and poetically to describe a holy encounter. An interaction between the divine and human. So with those being metaphors, let's put on our imagination hats for just a second and imagine with me what it means to be baptized by the Spirit. To be saturated with God's love, kindness, and power, permeated from head to toe with God's Spirit. Imagine being filled with the Spirit the experience of being full of energy, vitality, and zest for life, full to the point of overflowing. Imagine being led by the Spirit, like a parent gently taking the hand of their toddler to show the child what needs to be done, a gentle, come and follow me. And imagine being empowered by the Spirit, Endowed with the resources of heaven to be an agent of new creation. One of my favorite translations of this comes from Peruvian translators. The Holy Spirit permeates. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Led by the Spirit in the power of the Spirit. Jesus, an embodied human, flesh and blood, is invited into a holy collaboration with the Spirit of God for the sake of the world. And on the day Jesus returns to his hometown, he reads from the prophet Isaiah a passage we just read together. And in the power of the Spirit, the poor hear good news. The captives are liberated, the blind are given sight, the oppressed are set free, and the year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed. 
the miracles, the empowerment, the flipping of tables, the elevating of the marginalized, the ministry of Jesus, all of Jesus' life in the Spirit is pointing to something. It's pointing to that new creation, a space called the kingdom of God. Now, I know we've spent a good amount of time on the subject of the kingdom, but I will never pass up a moment to remind you and to reaffirm its significance in the teachings of Jesus. The subject of the kingdom is not just an aspect of Jesus' teaching, it is central. It is the good news. This is what Jesus says in chapter 4, verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Philosopher Dallas Willard defines the kingdom as the range of God's effective will. Wherever God's will is being accomplished, there the kingdom is. Or Jesus' definition might be something we're able to wrap our heads around a little bit better. His definition is God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Put simply, the kingdom of God is what it looks like when God is in charge. And it is a kingdom utterly unlike the kingdoms of this world. It is a kingdom that belongs to those who do not have a penny to their name. It is a kingdom of comfort for those who have been crushed by the weight of the world. It is a kingdom of downward mobility, favoring the have-nots over the haves. It's a kingdom where those who ache for justice will be satisfied. It is a kingdom where the powerful strive not to be served but to serve. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom, a new world order, all under the leadership of Jesus. And everything that will follow in Jesus' ministry, from the teachings to the stuff we don't know how to explain, is pointing to this reality. When we read of a miracle of Jesus, it's not just Jesus doing magic tricks. It's him pointing to something other than what we know, which brings us to the Jesus stuff, the unexplainable, the indescribable, the miraculous. In biblical theology, these are called charisms or gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are divinely energized acts that defy our understanding of reality and point to the goodness of the kingdom of God. Now, I won't offer you an explanation of how all those things work. That is way beyond my pay grade. But I can just simply point out all the different ways Jesus is revealing the kingdom. In the 24 chapters of Luke's gospel, I count about 28 miracles, many of which occur in the same story. And so to generalize, I'm not going to go through all 28. I just want to kind of condense and generalize Jesus' charisms into one of five categories. First, the charism of wisdom. In his teachings, people found themselves moved by his words. His teachings moved beyond data or information 
but to truth that transformed the heart. His words seemed to be energized by something beyond. Then there's the charism of discernment. This is Jesus' weird ability to read minds. In his reading of a situation or an individual's intentions, Jesus exercised an insight into the reality of a human heart that transcended simple observations. Then there's the charism of exorcism. I don't know what to do with that one other than to say it's prevalent throughout Jesus' ministry. Evil spirits and demonic presences could not hide from Jesus. He exercised an authority that not even the gates of hell would be able to prevail against. Jesus knew the powers of darkness, and he set about casting them away from his people. Then there is the charism of miracles. This was my catch-all category. Because his ministry was marked by signs and wonders, incredible acts that verified the authenticity of his gospel. This is things like feeding the 5,000, walking on the surface of a lake, and being raised from the dead. Just catch-all category. And then the final category is the charism of healing. This is by far his most prominent spiritual gift a foretaste of reality's total healing. Each of these divinely energized acts transcends the boundaries of what we thought was possible and invites us to consider a kingdom established by God. And for those like me who might have a little bit of a cynic or a doubter in you, I want to offer two thoughts on the miracles of Jesus. First, our author Luke is a detailed historian. I spent some time in Israel several years back, and we continued to encounter um, scholars, academics, and um, historians with no particular religious allegiance, but they continue to celebrate the gospel of Luke for its geographic and historical accuracy. Like, Luke is a historically reliable document. Now, they would dismiss the references to miracles or the supernatural, but in the first verse of Luke, Luke 1.1, 1, 1, Luke claims to be writing an orderly account from eyewitness testimonies. So it seems weird or bizarre, maybe, to celebrate an author's accuracy on certain details and not others. So I think Luke provides us a trustworthy account of the life of Jesus. And then second, it's worth remembering that the same spirit that created the whole world is the spirit that permeates Jesus. The spirit that transforms the molecules of dirt into flesh and bone, creating the first human, surely knew how to repair what had been broken. It only makes sense that the anointed one, empowered by the Spirit, would go about restoring reality to the way it should have always been, marked with truth, goodness, beauty, and health. The miracles of Jesus are these little moments where the Spirit is given the chance to reassemble the good world. 
And in the shadow of the enlightenment, we've been conditioned to think of miracles as distortions of nature. But if the Spirit is the one who designed and brought our world together, these are not distortions, but moments in which reality is being put back in place the way it all always should have been. Again, these charisms do not exist for themselves. They're not magic tricks for Jesus to prove he is who he is. They are signs pointing to a different reality. Something is on the horizon. But perhaps the most shocking aspect of Jesus' ministry is his willingness to share the Spirit's power with his followers. In Luke 9, Jesus shares this empowering Spirit with his disciples for the first time. Luke writes this, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Then one chapter later, he sent the disciples out again, this time 72, empowered to heal, expel evil, and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The best I can tell, the charisms, the miracles, the healings, the discernment, the wisdom, and the exercising of evil were not meant to just be limited to Jesus. Something I find really compelling about Luke and his gospel writing is that he wrote both the gospel of Luke and the book we call Acts. They function as one story with two volumes, the story of Jesus and then the story of his followers. It's as if what Luke is saying is that the ministry of Jesus that dignified the poor, changed the heart of the most degenerate, and the casting out evil is continued in the work of those called Christian. Throughout Israel's history, the spirit was reserved for a select few, only the most courageous prophet, only the most skilled craftsman, only the king, only the brightest royal officials. But in Jesus, a new day has dawned in which God's empowering presence rests on all who confess his name. This is this radical distribution of God's spirit for a purpose, for us to work to reveal his glory in his kingdom. Jesus, an embodied human, is invited into this divine collaboration with the spirit of God for the sake of the world. And we, his followers, Embodied humans, flesh and bone, are invited into that same holy collaboration with the Spirit of God for the sake of the world. How are we doing? We doing okay? I know I just blasted through a ton of content. I was complaining to Corbin earlier. Luke is probably one of my favorite texts to read from. And so how do you put your favorite thing into like a 30-minute talk? So... This is me saying, okay, we looked at the book of Luke. We looked at the miracles and the empowerment of Jesus. Now what? Because if I can name a few tensions you might be feeling, that might be helpful. 
that was Jesus, but I'm not Jesus. Fair enough. Is it even biblical for us to look for the miraculous? Great question. Do those things really happen today? What about all those who have abused this type of ministry? What about when we pray and nothing happens? Each of these questions, each of these tensions has books and books and books written on them. So I cannot answer all of those questions. But just with a great deal of humility, can I offer just a few pastoral responses to these questions? First, that was Jesus, but I'm not Jesus. You and I are not like Jesus yet. But we're probably a lot like Peter, or maybe Thomas, or maybe Paul, or any number of his disciples. Cassie will teach on the book of Acts next week, but the whole point of Luke's writing is to open us up to the possibility that the Spirit might use us as we are, full of doubt, with mixed motives, and disordered desires. Maybe the greatest miracle Jesus ever pulled off was transforming his group of degenerate disciples into the world's largest family. He longs to use you as you are here and now. Second, is it biblical to look for or expect those things today? This is a theological position called cessationism. You actually won't find many modern scholars who argue this position because it's pretty difficult to defend. Proponents of this perspective will typically argue their position based on 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, or Ephesians 2, 20, and especially from Christian history. But in my opinion, the biblical text assumes the spirit of Jesus will continue to work through his followers. And followers of Jesus have experienced the power of the spirit through history. If you read church history long enough, you will find that there is a lot of weird stuff that nobody has a great explanation for. There's always been a long openness to the Spirit doing something surprising in the midst of the church. Second century theologian Irenaeus wrote this, Those who are in truth Christ's disciples receive grace from him to do in his name perform miracles so as to promote the welfare of other men according to the gift each one has received from him. If you've heard of St. Francis of Assisi, he's weird. There's a lot of weird stuff in his story. And in uh, a 13th century book about his life, it's wrote of St. Francis. For as much as he excelled in the possession of all virtues, in the spirit of prophecy, in the power of miracles, in the gift of preaching given him from heaven, in the obedience rendered him by creatures without reason, in the mighty change of hearts at the hearing of the word, in the learning imparted to him by the Holy Ghost to declare the gospel of Christ. Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Teresa of Avila, John Wesley. I could go on, but it suffices to say that for the better part of 2,000 years, the people of God have expected to hear the Spirit's whisper and for the Spirit to continue working in power. 
Third, do those things really happen today? Like, maybe you can see that the biblical text is pointing in that direction, but we don't see a whole lot of miracles on the streets of the U.S., do we? Like, I didn't walk out and someone was dead, and then they were brought to life. That's very true. But this is a very American-centric position. For our Christian siblings in the majority world are continuing to experience incredible outpourings of the Holy Spirit's power. Just as we've been discipled in American Christianity, we've become very ethnocentric. If we pay attention to our family in Iran, in China, or Kenya, I think we might be surprised by what God is up to. New Testament scholar and the man who wrote a 1,200-page book on miracles, I read a, a, an article of his recently where they asked him, like, how did you go about that? And he spent 10 years going to all of these different accounts of miracles and, like, working through the evidence. Like, is there medical history? Can I see it? Like, and he worked through this, and he has a 1,200-page tome on miracles. His name is Craig Keener. And he writes this, we have an explosion of miracles taking place, especially in conjunction with the spread of the gospel. Some things are outside the norm for most Westerners. Whatever kind of church we are associated with, it is probably good for us to shake things up. Extraordinary things are taking place around the world. Fourth, what about all of those ministries that have abused this? Experiencing a manipulative or coercive environment is prevalent, a prevalent reason, excuse me, people are unwilling to try to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the most infuriating aspects of God's love is that he offers grace and continues to work even in bad churches. Even with bad leaders, God somehow continues to work in their midst. And if I can be honest, that's infuriating to me. But he still uses manipulative leaders. And on one hand, that's frustrating. But on the other, it's comforting to know he will still use me. And he's still willing to use you. It's an unfortunate reality that some choose to abuse this topic, but I think we as a community can offer a more virtuous and loving example. In microchurches, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke this whole year, and one of the things I've picked up on that I hadn't noticed previously is how often Jesus does something incredible, and you know the first words from his mouth? Don't tell anyone. The miraculous power of the Spirit poured out in this intimate one-on-one -on -one moment because it wasn't for anyone else. It was for that person to know and experience the goodness and love of God in their life. We can offer a better example. Our interest is not in being famous or controlling the spectacular. Our interest is in faithfulness for the sake of the world. And fifth, what happens when we pray and nothing happens? 
for this entire time I've talked, this has been your question and worry. What if I pray for someone and the Spirit doesn't show up? What if I pray for healing time and time again and God does nothing? I don't know. Many of us carry memories of praying for healing, a job, or a family member, and nothing happening. And some of the most manipulative forms of spiritual abuse come from the phrases, just pray harder, believe harder, or just have more faith. I don't understand the inner workings of heaven's resources. I don't understand why God does things that I don't ask for and he doesn't do the things I do ask for. I don't know. I just know that he continues to invite us to risk and try. Amid our disappointment, his invitation is keep coming. Amid our heartbreak, his invitation is I am God with you. His invitation is keep coming to me. And as I think back on my life, I'm not really bothered by my failures too much. I'm bothered by the times I didn't have the courage to risk. I'm bothered by the times I was unwilling to rely on the Spirit to move in my life or the life of my neighbor. I'm bothered by the times I was unwilling to speak up for the mistreated. I am permeated with the Spirit of God, and yet I'm scared to confront a bully in the office. I'm bothered by the times I knew I had access to divine power, and I simply didn't ask. Listen, Jesus entered into this holy collaboration with the Spirit of God for the sake of the world, and we, his followers, flawed, broken, weak, hurting, powerless, doubting, are also invited into that holy collaboration with the Spirit of God for the sake of the world. Just to take that Isaiah 61 passage, in the power of the Spirit, we are called to proclaim good news to the poor. We are called to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind, and to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the dawn of a new creation in Jesus. Worship team, if you would join me. As I've been preparing these teachings and investigating the rhythms of my own life, I've decided that I want to close the gap or do my absolute best to close the gap between the Gospels and my own experiences. I want my life to be a living laboratory, an experiment in what it means to love God and to walk in the power of the Spirit and to do the Jesus stuff to actually see what Peter saw, to know the power of God as Paul did, to do what Jesus did, and yeah, that means the stuff. The things we rational, thoughtful, and slightly cynical followers don't want to wade into. The faith and the foolishness, the courage and the righteousness, the healings and the exorcisms, the spirit-empowered conversations and the uncanny mind reading. I want to see hope, healing, justice, and joy on the streets of this city. 
I want to know the power of the Spirit and to walk on the wild side of God. And I think that begins by allowing God to raise the bar on what I think is possible. Too often we don't expect God to do anything like that with us. We've closed ourselves off from being surprised by God. But what if the invitation of Luke is simply to open ourselves up to the possibility again that he might use someone like us? So here is my suggested practice this upcoming week. Take a risk. Pray for an injured neighbor. Confront an unjust HR policy. Preach the gospel to an acquaintance. Give away that bonus check. Start the ministry you've been dreaming about. Intercede for the family member. Take a walk and listen to what God might be doing on that street. Take a chance that that whisper might be the prompting of the Spirit. Just take a risk. That's it. That's all I've got in terms of invitation with this because I I don't know if I can give a great set of advice like do your best to listen to the spirit be humble try not to make it weird but do it all in love like I would love to give you three steps for a ritual that will get God to pour out his power in a moment but I think that's the point there is no ritual that forces the hand of God in our life it's trust I also wish I could set up this safe environment for us to practice our miracle working. And then all of a sudden, once we got enough confidence, we're like, okay, go. But I think that's the point. There's not a safe environment to risk and trust. There's just go and try. John Wimber, the the founder of the Vineyard Movement, used to say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. That's risk. I think the simple invitation of the Spirit is to take a risk and learn from the experience. Now, all of this is an invitation. So if you're like, hey, I, I hear you, but... I'm actually still figuring out what it's like to follow Jesus, or I'm just not sure I even know who he is. That is okay. This is all invitational. There will be no pressure, but I do get the sense some have been asking the question of Jesus, what's next? Like, what are you inviting me into? Where is the next step of courage? Where's the next faith risk? And I think this is it. To do the Jesus stuff. And here, here's the reality. Maybe at the end of this living experiment, we just have a lot of stories where we risked and God didn't show up. And in that case, I will make a club. I will buy you all drinks. And we will laugh about it late into the night. Like, we might look a little foolish, but I would rather look a little foolish trying to live out the life of Jesus than continuing to live safe. We might look a little foolish, but I'm inclined to believe that 
might be surprised. So let's risk together. Let's pray. Father, would you empower this little community of Jesus followers? trepidation, fear, doubt, and an unlimited number of questions. Would you empower us by your spirit with courage? Would you give little moments throughout this upcoming week to risk again for you? Would you replace our harsh cynic the faithful child just willing to work and collaborate with the Father. May we once again learn what it is to be the people of the Spirit, empowered by your goodness for the sake of all the world. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.